Well, John Maxwell says that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. I think that's certainly the case. If you think about the business world, some of the world's greatest companies, you immediately think about transformational leaders. Steve Jobs walks out onto a stage at an Apple keynote speech and announces the iPhone and radically alters our world. Think about Elon Musk and rockets to the moon and Mars. It's all about leadership. It's all about leadership when it comes to nations, militaries, and cities and communities. We need leaders with vision and wisdom, leaders of character who are going to help us get to where we need to go. It's true in homes, in schools, and especially in churches. See, I believe that a church without godly leaders is doomed to an existence devoid of fruit and bound for ruin. And I believe that because of what we see in the New Testament. The churches that depart from faithfulness and go astray from the gospel are churches that were led by ungodly leaders. Churches like the church in Ephesus, the church where Timothy had been left behind by Paul to command certain people not to teach a different doctrine and to get the church back in line. We saw, of course, that begins with sound doctrine and the attitudes we bring into worship. And now today, Paul tells us that if you want a healthy church, you need some clarity on the kind of leaders you commission to lead you. And that clarity comes to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verses 1 to 7, Paul identifies the qualifications for overseers. Men, I'm calling today shepherd leaders. And then in verses 8 through 15, he identifies deacons. Next week, we'll talk about them, servant leaders. But in any case, if you want a healthy church, you have to think long and hard about the kind of leaders you put in place. This is what I want you to see this morning. According to God's blueprint, a healthy church is led by godly leaders who shepherd the church towards gospel faithfulness and embody gospel faithfulness themselves. Right? According to God's blueprint, a healthy church is led by godly leaders who shepherd the church toward gospel faithfulness and embody gospel faithfulness themselves. Now, all week long, I've been imagining you. I've been thinking about the people who are going to be here on Sunday and the objections that they might have to a sermon from the Bible on leadership. And one objection that I think someone might fairly raise is that leadership seems to be a fundamentally modern preoccupation. For example, if you were to find a bookstore and go down the aisles, you would, without a doubt, come upon hundreds or thousands of leadership books. Books helping you identify your unique leadership qualities. Books that would help you grow as a leader. You go online, you could find seminars and courses and YouTube videos all about how to be the leader you want to be. It would be easy for us to assume that that is all pragmatic hogwash has nothing to do whatsoever with church. Business leadership is one thing. Church leadership is something else entirely. And there's partial truth to that. However, I would just suggest to you that the Bible is as concerned with leadership 
as our modern world is. In fact, if you begin in the Old Testament, you could tell the story of the Bible by tracing God's interaction with the most famous leaders there. You could start with Abraham. God called out of Ur of the Chaldees and told him he was going to bless him and make his name great, and he was going to give him so many descendants that they outnumbered the stars in the sky. Abraham was a warlord. He was a nomadic patriarch, had incredible wealth, and had tons of people at his disposal. You could move on to Moses, a shepherd that God called to set his people free out of Egypt, a man who gave them the law directly from God to his people. You could talk about Joshua, a military commander raised up and mentored by Moses and set apart to lead the people on conquest of Canaan. You could talk about the judges, the kings. Think about Saul, a man who had every leadership quality that the people longed for. He was tall, dark, and handsome, stood head and shoulders over everybody else in Israel. He was a warrior, a man accomplished on the battlefield, and everybody said, that's the kind of leader we need. But then, of course, Saul slain his thousands, but David slain his ten thousands, and God raises up this little boy, the youngest of Jesse's sons, a man after his own heart, to set him as king over his people. And he makes a promise to him, there will always be a son of David reigning on the throne. Now, God is concerned with leaders. That concern of the Old Testament continues into the New Testament. The New Testament tells us the story of the Lord Jesus, a man who was sent from God to live a sinless life, who died on the cross for his people and was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven and promises to come back and rule the world in righteousness someday soon. During his life on earth, he preached the gospel of the kingdom, announcing that God's reign was about to take root on earth. And his invitation was simple. Follow me. Now, every leader has followers. And Jesus attracted a vast number of followers. Everywhere he went, men and women laid aside what normally kept their attention and they followed him. From among this mass of followers, he called out 12 men. Mark tells us he called them out, hand-selected them, so that they could be with him, and so that he could give them authority to preach and to cast out demons. And he called these 12 men apostles. And at the end of his life, before he ascended to God in heaven, he gave them a task, a direct order from a superior officer that they were duty-bound to obey. He said, go into the, all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And as obedient followers of Jesus, they obeyed him. They went to every corner of the globe preaching the good news of what he had done, and disciples were made. And they were gathered up in the hall of Tyrannus, and in the portico of Solomon's temple, and in the activity building of Central Baptist Church, and they were brought together to be a church. And as these groups of disciples formed continuing bodies of believers, they recognized almost immediately the need for new leaders. There's only 12 of us, and there's a whole bunch of people out here. How can we spread out the authority that God has given us? How can we focus our attention on what we need to focus on and ensure that this church is taken care of? Acts chapter 6, we see the first time they run into this issue. There were some widows in the Jerusalem church 
who were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so they told the people, choose from among yourselves seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll hand this task to them. Those seven men aren't called deacons in Acts chapter 6, but they are the prototype that deacons someday take. And so next Sunday, we'll talk a lot about those seven men. But then they also had other needs. As Paul traveled throughout the Mediterranean world planting churches, he gathered people together into churches. And Luke tells us in Acts 14 that as he made a second stop in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, he appointed elders for them in every church. And then, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. They raised up men from within the church that they called elders to lead the people to be faithful to what God had called them to do. Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 1 that he'd left him on the island of Crete so that he'd put into order the things that remain. Namely, that you appoint elders in every town. Now, the New Testament uses this word elders interchangeably with the word overseers that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to show you that in just a second. But when Paul comes to write Philippians, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons. Look, I know somebody out there thinks that talking about leaders in church doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about Jesus and church. But you see, the Bible is concerned with the leaders that are set over God's people. You can't just call anybody. There needs to be some forethought. And Paul identifies for us in 1 Timothy 3 the two offices of a healthy church, overseers and deacons. Next week, we're going to talk about deacons. So today, is it cool with you if we talk about overseers? You guys are just glued in, man. Y'all are about as attentive a crowd of people as I have ever seen. Praise God for attentiveness to his word. So this morning, let's think together. What is a shepherd Leader. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anybody aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. There are men in the church in Ephesus who want to be overseers, and Paul says it's good. It's good for you to want to be a leader in your church. It's good for you to desire the office of overseer. Now, I assume those men knew what they were getting into if they wanted to be an overseer. But that word seems a little strange to us. Maybe your Bible even says bishop. We're Baptists. We don't have bishops. We hardly have shoes. No, I'm just kidding. But we don't have bishops. We just got preachers. We got Brother Brad up there on the stage. But Paul says, if anybody desires to be an overseer, he desires a good thing, a noble task. Overseer translates for us the Greek word episkopos which was a term used in the ancient world for recognized officials. They could serve in various roles. People who served as superintendents or managers or guardians or controllers or inspectors or rulers. People officially set apart for a specific task. Their work was to, I love this, keep an eye on things. They're just oversee and make sure everything happens according to plan and that we as a group get where we're supposed to be going. They are the overseers. This word is used in the, New, in the Old Testament to describe military commanders, men set in charge of certain units within the military. It's used of local rulers and city governors. 
But it's also used of God's loving care and watch over his people. And I love it. In Numbers chapter 27, God tells Moses he's about to die. And so Moses says, Lord, then if I'm about to go, you've got to raise up somebody from among the people so that the people won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And in response to that prayer for God's oversight over his people and giving them a leader, God gives them Joshua. God is the overseer of his people. He watches over us. He knows everything about us. He sees us as we are, and he sees us as he wants us to be. And he is good and sovereign, and so he can help us get there. The New Testament uses this same kind of language for God when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that as believers, we have come to Jesus, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So through all of life's concerns, the people of God are cared for and watched over by Jesus himself. And as an act of his care, he gives to us human leaders, under shepherds, overseers who will watch out for us. As Paul made his final journey from the far-flung reaches of the Roman Empire back to Jerusalem, he stopped off in a Turkish city called Miletus, and he called for his friends from Ephesus, the elders of the church in Ephesus, to come and meet him. And this is what he said to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock and... When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive from him the unfading crown of glory. Look, the church desperately needs shepherd leaders. We need men who are godly. Sometimes the Bible calls them overseers. Sometimes the Bible calls them pastors. Sometimes they call them elders. But we need shepherd leaders who are tasked with providing us loving and spiritual oversight to make sure we stay on track and stay focused on Jesus and the mission he's given us. Where are we going to find them? Where do you find men who fit this bill? I hope you notice Paul doesn't say in 1 Timothy 3 to create a job description and post it on a website up there for unemployed pastors and hope that one of them sees it and gives me their resume. He doesn't give us any kind of licensing or credentials, no educational requirements. He, an overseer must have a master of divinity and $30,000 in credit card or student loan debt. He doesn't say that. He tells Timothy, look among the people of God. They're sheep. And God is watching over them and he's concerned that they make it to heaven. And look for some godly men among them. Men who know the Lord and embody what gospel faithfulness is all about 
and who are able to shepherd the church of God towards faithfulness. And the men who want to be overseers, you make them overseers if they fit the bill. That's what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 3. He gives us the qualifications for identifying men among us whom God has set apart to be overseers or elders or pastors. And so what qualifications should we look for? If we want a healthy church and we know a healthy church needs godly shepherd leaders, what criteria should we evaluate them by? Well, number one, we see that we need leaders who will shepherd our church towards gospel faithfulness. You could think about this, like what are our leaders supposed to do? What are these shepherd leaders all about? What must they be competent in? And Paul says in verse two that they must be able to teach. Maybe your Bible says they must be apt to teach. Listen, any shepherd leader called and set apart to bring God's people toward gospel faithfulness must be able to teach. And you know that Christianity is a faith with a set body of doctrine. We don't add to our Bible. Our Bible is fixed by God. The 66 books we have are his word to us, each one breathed out by him, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We are to contend, Jude says, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Our theology does not evolve with the times. We do not progress. We held fast to that which is true. And so we need our leaders to be able to teach us those things, to teach us God's word, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need them to know the doctrine that defines us as a church family. We know this is the case because of what Jesus himself said. He gave his 12 apostles those final marching orders and told them to teach the disciples to observe everything that he had commanded. So if you want to know what the shepherd leaders of our church need to teach, at its most basic, they need to teach us what Jesus said. They need to tell us what God's word is to us. But more than that, we know that Paul emphasizes teaching throughout his letters to Timothy. He says, for example, in 1 Timothy 4.16, you want to look down there with me, it says, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Listen, as much as we love our pastors, as much as we love our leaders, they don't have anything that can save us that doesn't come from God's word. We need men who are gonna shepherd us to gospel faithfulness, who are gonna open up the book week after week and show us what is true. We're gonna hold our feet to the fire. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me in the faith and in the love that are in Christ Jesus. Hold on to it. There's sound teaching that in every generation is at risk of being lost or perverted. Hold on to it and don't let go of it. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit also to faithful men who will be able to teach others. That every generation of the church is responsible for raising up shepherd leaders who are able to teach us the truth. That if we don't, we should plan on our churches dying or departing from the faith when we're gone. So they need to be able to teach. 
That doesn't mean that every shepherd leader, whether you call him an elder or a pastor or an overseer, has to be a theologian or a deep Bible scholar. They don't have to have at their disposal at any moment the deepest questions that you've got on your heart. In fact, the Bible is clear that some pastors or elders are going to be better teachers than others. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But while they may not all be equally gifted at teaching, they all should be able to explain the fundamentals of our faith and to recognize false teaching when they see it and have the courage to stand up and say so. This is wrong. So they need to be able to teach. But not only that, they've got to be able to exercise some oversight and leadership. And I've honestly learned this one kind of the hard way over the last four years. That if you want to be a leader, you have to lead. There's a difference between having a title of leader and of actually having the influence to lead the people under your care. And Paul says you need to look out for the men who are able to lead. We see this when he begins talking about the man's family. In verse 4 and 5, he says he must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. Because if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? So Timothy, as you're looking among the people, trying to identify men who would make good shepherd leaders, look especially for men whose houses are operating smoothly. Now, as a parent of young children, I'm, I feel seen by this. I don't believe that Paul means that every pastor or elder or overseer has to run a tight ship and that his kids are never going to disobey and never going to run in the church and never going to talk back. I don't believe that. I don't even believe that Paul is saying that every pastor's kid needs to be a believer. I sure gave my parents a run for the money with my behavior. Right? But what I do think Paul is saying is that when you look at a man's family, what is the overall tenor of his home? Do his children love him and respect him? When he speaks, do they listen? Does his wife respect and love him? Or... Is it obvious that things are out of whack in their home? That's the best way, Paul says, to evaluate whether or not a man is able to lead the church, which is crazy. I mean, I mean, you think about it. I'll tell you, in seminary, I was around a bunch of guys who were destined for great things. We all believed that we were the next pastor of First Baptist Dallas or First Baptist Houston. We we're going to have thousands of people lined up ready to listen to us. We were all idiots. We didn't know anything. We were so immature. And what Paul says is when you're looking for men who are going to lead your church, look for men who are functioning well in their family. The best place to cultivate the heart of a pastor is not in a seminary classroom. It's in the nitty-gritty, in-and-out of family life. Now, church isn't a classroom. As much as... We would like to preach our way through and out of any problem we face as a church family. Uh, it doesn't work. I can't preach sermons good enough to fix the problems our church faces. Just like I can't tell my kids to do exactly what I need them to do to fix the problems in my house. I have to be patient. 
and loving with them. And the same skill set comes to play in a household. After all, Paul says they need to manage their household well, and they need to take care of God's church. Both of these verbs speak to having authority and responsibility for the well-ordered functioning of a thing. The first word, to manage, literally means to rule or to have a position of authority where you are responsible and authorized to act. And then that word rule is flavored by taking care of, which is only used one other time in the New Testament. Taking care of God's church. It's used in Luke chapter 10 in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And I don't know if you know this story, but it's probably one of Jesus' greatest stories. Because it tells the story of a man who was going up to Jerusalem to worship, and on the way he was waylaid by robbers. He was beaten, they took all his stuff, and they left him on the side of the road to die. And while he's breathing his final breaths, a priest walks by and passes over to the other side of the road. And then a Levite, the priest's assistant, I mean, these are the leaders of God's people. They pass over to the other side. Eventually, a Samaritan, a religious syncretist and ethnic half-breed who was looked down upon by the Jewish people comes along. And he sees a man wounded and dying, and he loads him up on his donkey, and he takes him to the inn, and he pays for all of his care, and he says to the innkeeper on his way out the door, please take care of him. And if you need anything else, I'll pay you when I get back. Like when Paul talks about the leadership exercised among the people of God, he flavors the authority and rule of pastors and elders by saying you need to take care of them. You need to watch over them in the same kind of loving way that God takes care of you. After all, Jesus had to tell his disciples who were looking for positions of authority in his kingdom and arguing who was the greatest and who was going to sit on his right hand and his left, that that wasn't the way it was going to work among them. That the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over their people, but not so among you. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, when a dad lays down his rights for the good of his family, he shows himself to be the exact kind of guy you're looking for in a shepherd leader in your church. Somebody who's willing to change diapers and wipe snotty noses is going to make for a great pastor. And so Paul says, be looking out for those kind of men. But Paul's not just concerned about what these shepherd leaders are supposed to do. Like, all that matters is, but yeah, but can he preach? No, he says what's most important is their character. Who are they? Who are they? And in emphasizing this, that leaders who embody gospel faithfulness, he is following Jesus' instruction to us in Matthew 7, when he says that we need to be on the lookout for false teachers who come to us as wolves in sheep's clothing. He says we can identify those men just like Timothy can identify the good men by examining their fruit. After all, you don't get grapes from a thorn bush. You don't get good fruit from a bad tree. You'll know them by their fruit. And so what kind of fruit should we look for in a man's life? And Paul gives us a massive list of character qualities, virtues and vices that we need to use as a filter 
for examining potential leaders in the church. I'm, I'm sorry, but I will keep you here for hours if I try to go into detail on every one of them. So what I'm going to try to do is give you a 30,000 foot view and then invite all of our men to our skeet shoot on Saturday where I'm going to give you a journal that's going to walk you through each of these qualities over the next three weeks and invite you to examine yourself through these lenses. Okay, But I'll give you the 30,000 foot view and simply say it like this. That when Paul talks about the leaders we should look for in our church, he says to evaluate their character under two categories. Number one, you need to look at the way they lead themselves. Evaluate their personal maturity. And then you need to evaluate the way they interact with other people. So take a good hard look at who they are and then examine them in relationship to the people around them. The first thing he says really serves as the overarching qualification for any shepherd leader in the church. He says they need to be above reproach, irreproachable. This means that a man is free from any obvious sin or defect. John MacArthur says it like this. We're not looking for a guy that's never committed sin, because how could you ever find one of those? But we're looking for a man who has nothing in his life that would prevent him from setting the standard for gospel faithfulness. We're looking for a man who exemplifies what it means to follow Jesus. After all, the qualifications that Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 aren't a very high bar. In fact, there's something that every Christian should aspire to embody themselves. And so Paul says the leaders in your church need to be of the utmost Christian character. They need to have achieved at least the first signs of spiritual maturity so that you could point to them and tell a new believer, if you want to know what it means to know and follow Jesus, come spend time with this guy. They need to be above reproach. Now listen, if a man ever finds himself in a position of leadership, especially in the church, they're going to be accused of all kind of things. Some things are true and they need to change and grow. But many of them will be false. It's lonely at the top and you stick your head out, you will get shot at. But here's the thing about an irreproachable man, a man who is above reproach, that people will accuse him of all kind of things, but the people who know him best will see right through it. None of it will stick. They'll say, that doesn't seem right to me. That seems out of character. I've never seen him do that before. That is a man who's above reproach. People say and accuse him of all kinds of things, but none of it sticks. Paul goes on, though. It's not just that he needs to be above reproach. He enumerates some of the areas of his life where he's likely to run into trouble. And the first one he says is he's going to be the husband of one wife. Now, people have debated what this means. And just for the 30,000-foot view, I don't believe that Paul is talking about polygamy here that he's forbidding a man in the church who has multiple wives from serving as an overseer or elder or pastor. I think that goes without saying that the Christian standard for marriage is one man and one woman. And any man who hasn't attained that level of spiritual maturity probably isn't the guy that you want to set up as an example for godliness. I also don't think Paul is talking here about divorce and remarriage. I do not believe divorce is the unpardonable sin. And I think that many times... Various things happen, and God has tons of grace 
What I think he's talking about is faithfulness in physical intimacy with a man's wife. I think that this man that Paul has in mind is the husband of one wife, or the Greek literally says, a one-woman man, and that his heart is not divided, that his eyes are not going in all different kind of directions, but this man is 100% committed and faithful to his wife. Now, believe that because we've seen the counterpoint, haven't we? We've seen what happens to church leaders who get brought down on this issue. I mean, it seems like almost every week there's a new scandal of a church leader who's fallen because of sexual sin. And I think the reason Paul has to name this right at the top of his list is because this seems to be the way Satan likes to attack church leaders. Now, I heard one pastor say it like this. It was actually Chris Osborne and a pastor of Central Baptist Church in College Station now at Southwestern Seminary. He says that the way Satan works is like this. That typically a church leader doesn't fail in the area of faithfulness to his wife all at once. It's not usually the case that he's on an airplane sitting next to a beautiful woman and gets caught up in passion and one thing leads to another. But instead that what happens is as a man is maturing into who he's supposed to be in Christ, Satan will present the bait and he'll allow him to take it. But he doesn't set the hook yet. Instead, he waits for a man to grow and to gain influence in the church. And when he's at the height of his influence, when he can affect the most people, that's when Satan sets the hook and brings him down. And so Paul says, you need to look for men who don't have any whiff of issue in their life where they could be pulled down by this. And in today's climate, it is of utmost importance that shepherd leaders be the husband of one wife, above reproach in the area of physical intimacy. He also says they need to be self-controlled, which literally means to be unmixed with wine. And so could refer to not drinking alcohol or being drunk. It's also used in extensively in the Greek philosophers to talk about having clarity of mind, to being clear-headed or self-controlled. And a clear-headed man is sober in his thinking and able to focus, not fuzzy, but able to see through the challenging situations that he's likely to face in a church with clarity. Paul says he also needs to be sensible, which means to be prudent or thoughtful, able to weigh all the various decisions set before him and choose the course of action that's best. Are you with me? He needs to be respectable, which comes from the Greek word kosmion, which refers to having your life well-ordered. It's used to talk about military rank and file. Are all the soldiers where they're supposed to be doing what they're supposed to do? Have y'all ever known a man who wanted to be respected? I think every man wants respect. But respect is always earned. And sometimes when guys are together, We'll start talking about the things we're proud of, the things we think are worthy of respect. Maybe it's our lawn. You guys are over for a barbecue and you're standing on the back deck and you're just admiring those beautiful lines, how the lawn is just mowed so perfect. Maybe I'm talking to Aaron this week and I really got to get out there and organize my tools. And we always, in our mind, have this picture of all our tools in the right slot. Maybe they're even custom molded or it's foam that's been meticulously put out so everything has its place. 
That is how God has made us at men. We desire to bring order out of chaos. And when we do, people recognize that as being worthy of respect. Men who are respectable have an air about them. Maybe it's the way they conduct themselves in their business, that they are on point. Maybe it's the way they present themselves and the way they dress. Maybe it's the way they conduct their family life. Maybe it's the way they are at church. But they are buttoned up, put together, squared away, on point, and everybody looks at them with respect. Paul says you need to look for men like that to lead your church. By the way, one person said it. He said, the ministry is no place for the man whose life is a continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. You're not looking for a guy who has awesome ideas but zero execution. You want a shepherd leader, you want a man who's worthy of respect, a man who's put together and well-ordered and squared away. We got a few more to go. He's not an excessive drinker. Now, I don't believe the Bible prohibits church leaders from drinking alcohol. I just can't make a biblical case for that. Um, But I do think that the Bible warns us again and again and again about the danger of drunkenness. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, this man must not be an excessive drinker. He might even, one might add, choose to abstain entirely from drinking alcohol. But in any case, alcohol doesn't have a grip on his heart or life. Neither does money. This guy's not motivated by getting rich. Instead, he's motivated by what's good for the people around him. And finally, Paul says that he's not a new convert but that he's achieved a level of spiritual maturity so that if you put him in a position of authority, it's not going to go to his head and he's not going to stumble and fall. So that's the kind of man you're looking for, a man who has achieved a a personal level of self-mastery and maturity in Christ that will ultimately spill over into the way he relates to other people. Paul says he must be hospitable. That means he must live an open life, that he must have people close enough that they know who he is and know what he's about. Of course, in the ancient world, hospitality was a moral obligation that you owed everybody. If a neighbor showed up at your house, you were responsible for inviting them in and preparing them a meal. To neglect that was the height of shameful behavior. The early church expected hospitality of one another. They said, hey, if you've got an extra shirt, you need to give it to the person in your church family who doesn't have one. If you've got extra food to eat, share with them. Hospitality is a standard expectation of the Christian life and therefore is expected of every shepherd leader. There's an adage that often says, beware of a shepherd who doesn't smell like the sheep. A pastor who's aloof and unapproachable probably is not going to be able to care for the people that God has entrusted to him. Paul also says he's not a bully, but gentle. He's not argumentative or quarrelsome. The guy you're looking for is not itching for a fight. He's not always got to be right, but he cares about the people enough to talk with them carefully and gently. He's willing to speak a soft word and turn away wrath rather than striking them with the truth, forcing them to comply. Finally, he says that a church leader like this will have a good reputation among outsiders. What do the people say about him in our community? Do they know him? Do they know him to be a kind person, a helpful person? Or do they know him to be judgmental and stuck up? 
these, Paul says, are the criteria you should look for in a man who you want to serve as shepherd leaders. And so I would ask you, if everything rises and falls on leadership, shouldn't we prioritize these criteria in evaluating the people we've called to lead our church? If this was the criteria for a healthy church in the first century, have we changed all that much? Have we changed so much that God's word to his people then would be different than his word to us now? These are basic qualifications, ensuring that the men raised up from among us to lead would be able to shepherd us to be faithful and would embody that faithfulness themselves. And so this morning, as we close, I want to challenge you to do two things. Number one, I want to challenge you to pray for our church like you've never prayed for our church before. And I want you to specifically pray that God would raise up from among us men who fit these qualifications. Maybe they're not men who've gone to seminary. Maybe they're not men who ever thought they'd be a pastor. But men who would hold fast to what is good and shepherd our church to be faithful to the gospel for years and years to come. And number two, I want you to pray for our bylaw revision team who has been hard at work for nearly a year trying to take this passage and other ones like it and apply them to our 21st century world, to our church. I'm confident that by January, you're going to start seeing some of their work and I want you to be fully prepared by God to read what it is they have for us. Okay, and then number two, I want to challenge every man in this church, and particularly those who, as we were working through this list, you felt the Holy Spirit prompt in you that this is you, or this could be you, that there's nothing more than you would like than to be a leader in your church to help us be faithful to Jesus and all that he's called us to do. And you know that right now, maybe there's some areas of your life where you need work. Would you humbly submit yourself to God's work in your life? Would you let him work in you so that he can prepare you to be the leader that he's called you to be? And then would you be faithful and obedient that when he presents you an opportunity to step into that position of leadership that he's called, created, and equipped you for, that you would do it. You good on that? Then let's pray.